Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 22 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you so much for downloading us, whether that be on Podbean or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from we really do appreciate you taking the time to have a listen to us my name is the twisted genius dinas i am joined as ever by my esteemed co-host the sports journalist mr liam hap liam how are you doing sir i'm okay dean i'm okay it's been a bit well it's been one of those weeks really poor little one's not feeling well it's all been manic over here but but yeah i've been remedying that by just playing Fire Pro Wrestling World non-stop whenever I have free time. Basically, any moment of free time I have has been on that game. Uh, which hasn't been much, to be fair, but it's, it's been time well spent because that game is fucking awesome. Uh, I'm still waiting for someone to do a, a Dean AS manager, uh, create a wrestler to put up on the, on the website where people can download it and stick on their game. So if anyone listening plays the game and uh, makes CAWs, make the Twisted Genius Dean As. We're going to get him on Fire Pro. We're going to get him in the WWE and we're going to get him in the Wrestling Media Hall of Fame. That's my free point <laughs> plan for the next 12 months. You just want to beat threat. me up. You uh, just want to beat me up in Fire Pro Wrestling. Nah, I just, you know, I'll, I'll beat up the wrestler and I'll throw a little baseball slide away every now and then. I see. Very nice. So, uh, well, obviously, this was the week where the UFC once again proved that they do pro wrestling better than pro wrestling. God, do, do you know, I don't know if I told you, but I was a hair's breadth away from actually heading out to Vegas for this one. Because I was yeah. in a bit big fight. I mean, the, the early forecast for figures speak volumes and everyone's talking about this so fair enough uh it's weird because everything about it has people clamoring for more except for one thing and that's the actual fight because you know khabib mauled him there is uh, other than to see the sideshow again there is no reason whatsoever to have them fight again but then it's it's good you compared to pro wrestling then because that's where one thing works because if, if the WWE can give us Braun Strowman mauling Kevin Owens over and over again and still find this tenuous way of convincing us they have to do it all over again, then why not in the UFC, eh? As Tyson Fury said, it's all about show business. So uh, we have got ourselves a very special guest. We have got a, a man who's a stalwart of the British wrestling industry. Uh, the man behind Extreme World Warfare down on the south coast, the Dominator, Stu Allen. Good evening, Stu. Hello, Taps. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, man. Good. Um, we had a little chat, didn't we, recently, Dean? And uh, I came up with this ludicrous idea uh, <laughs> uh, to, to add, a, add a little bit of a... Uh, vibrance into your show, and uh, it seems to have bit me right on the arse. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was on your Stiff Right Hand podcast. Yes, thank you very much, man. We've got a lot of um, a lot of our fans here at EWW are also big IPW fans. Um, obviously, Billy Wood being an old business partner of mine, and so they were very excited to, to hear that we had you on. And, uh, 
Yeah, we've got just uh, just over 10,000 downloads for that episode. Wow. So thank you for that. We can only dream of 10,000 downloads here, so don't go expecting that. From the <laughs> <WCW. laughs> we could only dream of 10. <laughs> well, no, I've been having a listen to a couple of your episodes while I've been in the gym, and they're, they're good, man. I love the concept. It's, it's a cool show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, for people who may not know uh, who you are or know who EWW are, far away, tell, tell the world what, what, uh, what you guys are all about. Okay, well, basically, um, yeah, I'm, I'm the, uh, the Dominator. I've been wrestling as the Dominator now for exactly 20 years. Um, I've actually been wrestling for 25 years as pro. I was trained by um, the legendary Adrian Street at uh, Skull Crushers in Florida uh, by Adrian and Mick Foley. Um, and basically um, started up my own promotion in 1998. This is our 20th year anniversary coming up right around the corner um, at the Sussex Coast College um, Station Plaza in Hastings which is October 27th, um, so 20 years of EWW, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge night for us. And uh, if uh, who, who's on the show for that one? Well, we've got, uh, I mean, most of my shows, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't bring in, um, if, if I can help it, a lot of um, imports, so I'd say 80% of our roster are guys at home, you know, guys and girls at home trained at our academy, um, but we have got um, the likes of uh, Thunder, Darren Walsh, we've got... Um, uh, Kelly Six, uh, Rowdy Ricky Knight, uh, Soraya Knight, um, Erin Angel. So we've got, you know, some stalwart, stalwarts of the British uh, wrestling scene uh, coming along to join us and a few a few other surprises as well on the night. Nice. And so if uh, people want to get any tickets, how can they uh, go about that? Uh, go uh, to uh, our, our website, eww-wrestling.com, or if you're local in the uh, East Sussex area, um, Hastings Tourist Information. Nice. And uh, you mentioned IPW because obviously I am uh, one of the commentators there and they've got a very busy uh, November coming up. Yeah. Uh, man. And um, I've, I've seen today it has been announced that. Um, yes, we're, we're, coming, we're, doing... we're coming to spoil your show. <laughs> yes. November the 12th, uh, we are in Eastbourne back there for the first time in a while at My Skate World. And it's just been announced that the IPW women's champion, Bobby Tyler, will be defending against none other than <laughs> Scarlett. Yes, yeah, so I said that would upset the purists if we got involved. <laughs> yes, yes, fuck you all. Yes, the clowns are coming to IPW. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Scarlett, obviously the top female star, and, and also I think it's no secret that people know is also uh, your missus. Yes, yes, exactly. Good old nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> and is also one of the toughest female wrestlers I've ever had the pleasure of watching in the ring. So She's um, done very well. She, we're, we're looking forward to it, man. IPW is... Grown and grown. I'm a big fan of obviously yourself. You've got um, Ricky Slatter um, and uh, Billy Wood, and I've, I've had a couple of meetings with Billy, and I've seen some of the shows, and they're phenomenal. They really are top top class shows, and so it's going to be yeah, it's going to be an honour to be part of it. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to because WCW. Now choke on that. We asked you. Yeah, come on here. Choose, <laughs> choose any pay per view that you like. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, I, I've always considered Stu to be a good friend, a stand-up kind of bloke, you know. And then, then he goes and pulls this one out. Out of every pay per view that's ever happened, 
you chose Halloween Havoc 91 and the yes. Chamber of Horrors. For yes. fuck's sake, why? Well, the only thing I could I was thinking, the only thing I could have done worse would have been Uncensored 96, <laughs> um, which was the triple tower of what the fuck, God knows what the yeah. hell that was. And that's um, where it was taken, yeah. Oh, Bedford, man. That one. Well, that dude, I was going to go for that, but um, no, it's got to be the Chamber of Horrors, man. I, I remember as a child... It was one of the first VHS, the first rogue WCW VHS tapes I, I got. I remember being absolutely besotted by the just stupidness of it. And having watched it again this past weekend, absolutely, I'm just, I, I just cannot believe that happened. <laughs> well, um, should we crack it? Liam, are you, are you ready? You got your seatbelt on. Should we crack on with Halloween Havoc 91? Seatbelt check. Uh, crash helmet check, hazmat suit check. Yeah, I think I'm ready. Have you uh, got some kind of strong sedatives? <laughs> no. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay, so it is the third annual Halloween Havoc pay-per-view from WCW coming to you from the UTC Arena in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, the camera pans around what is mo- most definitely the least hyped-looking crowd in wrestling <laughs> history. They're just they're just standing <laughs> there. And we are introduced to the show by our hosts, Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. Uh, we then jump to a videotape of Eric Bischoff outside earlier this afternoon, talking to the camera and watching wrestlers enter uh, the arena as they've never done before, <laughs> alerting us all to the fact that an angle is happening. Uh, we see Cactus Jack and Abdul, the butcher, the latter of whom is dressed in a shirt and tie, which is completely out of keeping with his gimmick. Um, after DDP and the Diamond Stud arrive, we then see Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham turn up. Uh, Bischoff shakes Wyndham's hand, which he hasn't done with anyone else, and then Arn Anson and Larry Zbysko jump out of nowhere and slam his hand in the car door. Wyndham says that he thinks it's broken. Dustin jumps in the driver's seat and whisks him off to hospital. And if this sounds really hokey, that's because it really was. I'll tell you. Bischoff's acting in this segment did not win him a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. <laughs> um, but then the thing was, I didn't understand... Wyndham was supposed to be on the heel side in the Chamber of Horrors match, even though he's a face, but this angle took him out of the match and he was replaced by Big Van Vader. <laughs> but, um, I was wondering, why was a baby face on the heel team? And uh, the answer, for five points, Stu, can you think of the answer on my card? I, 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 no, uh, other than the fact, who, who, who booked I've, I've no idea who booked it. Okay, I'll, I'll hand over to uh, Liam. Liam, can you, for a bonus... Why was a babyface on the heel team? Oh, Stu, we do we do this every episode, mate. The answer's <laughs> in the name. Uh, <laughs> I'll take I'll take because WCW for five points, then. Right. Oh Jesus Christ! Oh, you're you're off to a blinder, aren't you? And so is oh. this pay per view. But you know what? I, I could see you object. I could I could hear you objecting, Stu, and I kind of know why. I think I know why. Uh, yeah, everything Dean laid out about this angle is is hokey as all hell, and yet. You know, as as far as attack slash injury angles go in wrestling, this one has aged really well. People look back fondly uh, at this angle where they broke his hand. And yeah, I suppose if you do it in a less contrived manner, it's it's an all-time great. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can see why it's polarising. 
There's a touch of Memphis about it, isn't there? Let's be honest. Oh, well, the hokiness makes it Memphis more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the fact that Carr is involved makes exactly. it very much like Jim, Jim Cornette as well, you know. So, At least um, they're not trying to run each other over yet. This is true. Wait, this till, is true. wait till early 2000 and Russo. <laughs> Yeah, or even the old monster trucks from uh, Halloween Havoc '95. Oh was yeah, that? Yeah, I had repressed that memory, and oh, you know sorry. what? It's it's a very good reason for me to make the executive decision that and say, Do you know what? We've done a lot of Halloween Havocs already in the short lifespan of this uh, podcast. Uh, and this is finally we're doing one in time for fucking Halloween. But we've done we've done like four or five Halloween Havocs already, and I've got an excuse now to pull rank. We shouldn't have to look at Kobo Hall and Havoc '95 <laughs> for at least I don't know twenty years. <laughs> That's fair, isn't fair it? Fair enough. Okay, well um, we, we're starting this pay per view off in a big way. Oh my goodness, how are we? We are starting with our Chamber of Horrors match, which is an eight man. T- uh, tag, not even a tag, an eight-man war, uh, Elegante, Sting, and the Steiner brothers on one side, Abdul the Butcher, Cactus Jack, the Diamond Stud, and Big Van Vader are on the other. It's worth noting that the entire heel team had changed from what was originally advertised, apart from the Diamond Stud. It was meant to be a one-man gang who had left WCW before this, uh, clearly choosing to maintain his dignity over a pay-per-view payoff. He was replaced by Abdullah the Butcher. Um, Oz, i.e. Kevin Nash, who was still with the company, he was replaced by Cactus Jack. But don't worry, Nash fans, we'll see him in singles action later on. And then, as I mentioned, Barry Windham, who's replaced by Vader. So um, Gary Michael Capetta explains the aim of the match is to put an opponent on the other team into the Chamber of Horrors, Chair of Torture, and pull the lever, rendering them helpless. Uh, he also tells us that there are several instruments of torture inside the cage. Um, yeah, WCW sure does love their clusterfuck inside the cage. Um, and I, I was just wondering how many different people had to approve this idea before it made its way to pay-per-view. That's what gets me. <laughs> oh. um, at least, it, I suppose at least it was on first, unlike the uh, uncensored triple cage of doom clusterfuck, whatever it was called, that you mentioned earlier, oh, Stu. Oh, thing of beauty. <laughs> so uh, this match uses the Thunderdome cage that they'd featured in the main event of Havoc 89, actually. Sting and Flair v. Muta and Funk. Um, so, yeah, in case you didn't realise this match is going to be awful, here comes Ellie Ganter as the first participant. The uh, participants all come down the ramp to the same generic music in a seemingly random order, uh, but the last man out is Sting. He gets his own music, and he's the current United States champion, so that title's not getting defended tonight. Dropping so, his belt on the runway. In- <laughs> indeed. That's how, how important it is to him. Um, despite the idea of the match being that everyone's kept inside the cage, Sting and Cactus start fighting on the ramp and Rick Steiner joins them. Um, they finally all get in the cage with Sting waffling Abdullah with a kendo stick. Um, the referee has a camera on his head called the Referee. Oh, beautiful. It's, yeah, it's, it looks like he's wearing a, a, a child's cycling helmet with a camera on it. Um, it didn't catch on, but then having said that, you know, 20 odd years later, lots of cyclists now have cameras on their helmets. So Nick Patrick, you're ahead of your time, sir. Um, a thin masked man falls out of a casket at ringside. Oh, mate, that killed me. Uh, <laughs> he just falls out, it's supposed to be sort of big, and then Scott started just 
proceeds to beat the fuck out of him <laughs> before he's even introduced. <laughs> and can I just repeat, someone in WCW thought that this match would make people buy the pay-per-view. <laughs> um, and then the chair of torture encased in a small cage of its own comes down from the ceiling and is stuck slap bang in the middle of the ring, giving the eight wrestlers in the match absolutely no room to manoeuvre. Um, Vader tries to put Rick Steiner in the chair, but he fights his way out of it. Then a bunch of eight people, all dressed in white with their faces painted white, come down the ramp carrying a stretcher. Um, nobody knows why. Uh, my next note just says... Christ on a bike, Abdullah is trying to climb the cage. <laughs> uh, Cactus Jack is bleeding. The masked man is now chained to the cage, looking like something out of a specialist fetish club. Um, ten minutes or so uh, into the match, and, well, it's just fair to say nothing's really happening here. Uh, Cactus is climbing up the cage next to the switch or the lever that allegedly ch- turns <laughs> on the electric chair. Abdullah and the diamond stud double team Rick to put him in the chair but Scott comes to the rescue with a kendo stick uh, Abdu- uh, Rick, Rick is then put again in the chair by Abdullah as Cactus climbs the cage by the lever Rick then sort of belly to belly suplexes Abdullah into the chair and hooks him up to the device Cactus who is supposedly unaware of what's happened despite the fact that it took fucking ages to set up mm-hmm. pulls the lever thinking it's Rick Steiner a load of pyrotechnics go off and we're supposed to believe that we've just seen Abdullah get electrocuted, mm-hmm. even though the headpiece is about 20 centimetres away from his head. Uh, eventually, Abdullah is revived by Cactus, who he then attacks, and Abby goes up the ramp, attacks the ghouls with the stretcher, manages to trip over the edge of a stretcher on one of the prone ghouls and trips flat on his face. Uh, a fitting summary of this entire match. So, Stu, this was the highlight for you. <laughs> The floor is yours. What did you think of the Chamber of Horrors? Phenomenal. Phenomenal. How can you not love it? From from everything, it's just from Sting. The the writing was on the wall from Sting dropping the belt on the ramp, wasn't it? It it, it was one of the more more adept characters in there. The the actual feud between him and Mick Foley was fucking awesome. That's the one thing they hardly filmed throughout the match. Yeah. Sting actually does a whip, give him some pretty savage whips into the cage from the ramp. The camera misses most of it. Um, there's a wonderful moment after the guy topples out the out of the uh, the coffin, where I think it's Sting goes to uh, hit Cactus again on on the on the head with the top of the coffin, throws it in the air, and it kind of glides like a bit of paper, like just down and and grazes Mick Foley's head. And you can hear Shivani and Jim Ross scrabbling to find something hardcore to say about it. But it's it's amazing, and then typically redneck WCW, it has to be the black guy that goes and gets electrocuted, doesn't it? <laughs> it can only end that way. You know what? We've we've had we've had a few um a few instances of uh, of WCW being a little bit on the racist side, yeah. uh, like when when Virgil replaced the uh, the black security guard because uh, you know WCW <laughs> seemed to think that all black people look the same. But do you know what? That hadn't even crossed my mind. Jesus oh, Christ! As a, as a as a sort of t- young teen watching it, I thought. There, there was nothing changed. Like, oh, it's a bit of fun. Watching it back at the weekend, I thought, there's something shocking about a load of people cheering that. There's a, the only black guy, other than El Gigante, the only black guy getting fried for their entertainment. In Tennessee. Oh, in Tennessee. Christ. 
in Tennessee, and Tony Chivani says, oh, he's it's something smelling good tonight. You're fried, you're fried black guy. <laughs> Do you know? Do you know what, fellas? I I would say that this is gonna make me watch this again in a completely you know, new way the next time I watch it. But let's face it, me. I'm never watching this fucking match ever again, if so I don't, don't have to worry about that. I'm gonna I'm gonna come and find you and in the dead of night and do some brutal things to you, <laughs> like make me watch the show. Yeah, you've you already do, done that, mate. <laughs> You're a one-trick pony. But um, Thank you. it's funny you say, Stu, about them putting <laughs> them putting the one and only black guy in the match into it. Did you know? It's funny you mentioned earlier, Dean, the one-man gang. Did you know it was actually supposed to be the one-man gang getting the oh, execution really? spot? Now this is where this absurd fucking match gets even weirder. According to Dave Meltzer, the Wrestling Observer newsletter, who we know 90% of the time are absolutely spot on, they've got the inside line and that. Uh, the plan was was for one man gang to get uh, fried in the chair, and he was, from it he was going to develop amnesia. Oh, where have uh, I heard this one before? Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's good that they got to go through this idea anyway. Two years later, yeah. But um, the electrocution would give him amnesia, and he would come back thinking he was a baby face named Reverend Billy Bright. How marvelous! Oh, yeah, wonderful uh, so it gets it gets it gets even better. I mean, this was a first ballot wrestle crapper. I'm pretty sure that the you know of, of all the things that uh, R. D. Reynolds and Co. built that entire website and the, everything, the legacy of wrestle crap and every venture they've done since has basically come off this show and maybe one or two other things like the gobbledygooker. But yeah, it's funny you also mentioned Dean, the the referee camera, Nick Patrick. Do you know he was ahead of his time and he even had a hunch, Nick Patrick. Did you know this? He had a hunch that he was ahead of time with it and that there was money to be made with these referee style cameras. So he oh. actually, Nick Patrick actually had about 500 or so of them made and he thought he was going to get rich quick. Uh, Is this legit the... or are you just, are you, you just coming out with some nonsense? Well, here's the problem. He, the thing tanked. He ended up losing money because even though he had this great idea that it was ahead of his time, he had one problem, Dean. He couldn't sell anything. Yeah! Yay! Oh, because so running joke of the podcast, Nick Patrick is abysmal at selling wrestling holds. Awful. It's worse than El Hebner. There's yeah. me explaining the joke Norm Macdonald style, but yeah, uh, I had to get that one in. And so, yeah, but do you, do you know what the thing the thing with this match? Because I mean, you you saying there, Stu, about you know Sting and, and Cactus, and you know this is harking back to the glory days of of. WCW Worldwide on ITV at three o'clock in the morning. I remember the whole feud with Abdullah and Sting and and Cactus and Abdullah coming out of the big box at the Clash of the Champions and that. And it was, it was a really good feud. But like you said, the it was hardly focused on in the match. And the thing to me was that it packed so much talent and Elegante into one awful match. You've got basically, apart from being the waste of their abilities, you've got, you know, you've got Sting, the Steiners, Cactus, Vader, all these people in the opening match, which means they have to pad the rest of the card out with absolute shite, which we'll come on to later. Well, by all accounts, it should have been a bit of a dream match until you put, I don't know, a 12 by 12 structure in the middle of the ring where you say, like, they couldn't do anything. Yeah. So it was it was dreadful. 
not only could they not do anything, the the live crowd caught and as you said, Dean, they weren't exactly reacting to the opening of the show. They they weren't a, a fired up crowd for the beginning of this pay per view as it was. And then they've got this opening match where a load of crap's going on. They can't even follow it. So that, that's going to dampen it even more so. And this is the point of a podcast team where we'd normally bring up the art of the opener, another little running <laughs> thing we're focus on. Yeah. Let's face it, there's no point because as far as art goes, this is like dog shit smeared on a canvas. There is no art of an opener here. Not only is it a terrible match, it's a terrible way to start the show. That's all you can really say about it. Um, not, not an awful lot happens, that really, does it? No, it's just a few weapon shots. The, the the little cameo from the Phantom was crazy because they're trying to establish this whole mystery of the Phantom thing. But there's one problem. They've actually got a main event heel debuting under mask. We'll get to that in good time, obviously. But if this guy, unless you make it abundantly clear that someone else, for whatever fucking reason, is under that mask on this occasion, you're kind of giving the impression that this superb threat to Sting coming up on the next Clash of the Champions, the head of one of their best storylines, or one of their best ever Hill factions coming up, that all starts on this pay-per-view, uh, apparently started his life under the mask, uh, getting beaten up and handcuffed in the, in the opening match before he then bounced back. So that's another logic flaw. Um, as you said, the, the, the roster was incredibly weird for to do a four versus four, so random. Bear in mind, they're, they're, they're trying to establish this match where... Yeah, the loser gets fucking electrified. <laughs> I mean, okay, you know, if you see them use the electricity gimmick, they've used it in Mexico, electrified cages, CZW have busted that from time to time. I don't, I don't really think there's a place for it, but if you're going to do the pretend, or I suppose in CZW's case, they probably did fucking use electricity. <laughs> if, if you're going to use that thing, you use it for something that seems to justify the situation. But basically, can you imagine the discussion backstage, right? You've got these wrestlers, kayfabe speaking, obviously, you've got these wrestlers who are desperate for a pay-per-view paycheck, want to get on the card, want to make themselves known. Promo comes up to him, well, we've got a slot in this match, are you up for it? Yeah, you know me, mate. I'm desperate. I just want to get on the show. You tell me the match and I'll be a part of it. I'll gladly be a part of it. Okay, so it's a four versus four. Loser gets put in electric chair uh change of plan reminds me of feast or fired when tna did that a few years later okay so do you want to be in this match you could get a title shot that you could earn some other way or you could just get fired yes so the logic is absolutely astounding and as you've noticed i've not said a single positive thing about this match yet and yet as you know already dino uh Stu isn't the only person to defend this shower of shit we had someone speak to us on Facebook, uh, you know, a, a, very, a very loyal listener of, of the podcast, Mr. David Shand, who oh, yes. uh, actually defended this, like Stu defended it. So we, we challenged him to put together a more coherent defense of this that we could okay. try and challenge. Uh, and I've got it here. I've, a I've, more I've... coherent defense? You cheeky bastards. <laughs> well, well, you cheeky fucking bastards. <laughs> to be fair, your your defence was, this is glorious. I don't need anything else from the dominator, <laughs> motherfucker. If I say it's glorious, you'd lap it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway. Oh, this is brilliant. Let's, let, let's this, see what this, this is. Because... This is building up to the big money match in, the, <laughs> in you, WWE. You mean, you mean when, when he wakes me up in the middle of the night with a gun to my head? Yeah, that's a big money match. Uh, yeah. But no, good rules, yeah. When, when I when I say more coherent, one of the reasons I use that choice of word is because for me, 
there is no way of coherently defending this. But he gave it a try, and I'm going to read it out now. I've trimmed it down a little bit. He mentioned some of the things that happened, which obviously we've gone over. So I'm going to get right to the meat of this and where he, why this match is not shit by David Shand. <clears throat> Pro wrestling is, at heart, a faintly ridiculous business. It's a group of people playing exaggerated, over-the-top characters who engage in arguments that regardless of whether they are as simple as spilling coffee on someone or as serious as sleeping with someone's wife, can seemingly only be settled by pulling on spandex and jumping into a ring. It's a business in which zombie morticians can have 30-year legendary careers and where a man can tip over an ambulance with someone inside without either killing the individual or facing any sort of punishment. But all of that ridiculousness only ever works because of the willingness of those involved to commit to it. And there's no greater example of that willingness to push the envelope, uh, in fact to drive a van load of envelopes over a cliff, than the Chamber of Horrors. It's a ludicrous idea. A cage with an electric chair in the middle where the risk to the loser is that he will be electrocuted. On a rational level, who the hell is ever going to agree to put themselves in that situation? Just as I kind of said earlier. Who is going to decide the best way to settle a dispute, or in this case none at all, is to agree to be put in a cage and possibly electrocuted? And what company? It's going to risk killing one of its employees in front of a live audience and millions watching around the world. It's like the worst of early 2000s e-fedding where gimmicks get pulled on top of one another just to make a match more extreme with no thought for how it's actually going to work. It's ridiculous. It's totally mental. So much so, it's utterly comedic. Judged on ob objective merits as a wrestling match, the Chamber of Horrors is an awful mess. But I love it as being a great example of the crazy, altered reality in which pro wrestling operates. The readiness of those involved to present that to their audience and the readiness of the wrestling fans to accept it. Well, I appreciate you writing in, David, but when you say the readiness of wrestling fans to accept it, let's face it, they couldn't see a fucking thing in that cage. <laughs> I think David... You're right, makes... you're right, that was more coherent, to be fair. <laughs> Despite I me think, reading uh... and nearly butchering it. Yeah, I think David, David, you make some very good points, but it was still shit. Yeah, David, I owe you a beer. That was awesome. <laughs> that is gift okay. wrapping a turd, but that was one hell of a gift wrapping, to be fair. Okay, so we go backstage, uh, and Eric Bischoff has changed out of his tuxedo from earlier, and he's now in a Dracula costume. Uh, and Missy Hyatt is done up as some sort of Vegas showgirl. Uh, they speculate on who the WW Halloween Phantom is, and then they turn, uh, they bring in the newly turned Young Pistols. Uh, Tracy Smothers says he doesn't give a hoot who the Phantom is, which is obviously a really good way to put over your own company's angles. We then go to match number two, which is the Creatures versus Big Josh and PN News. And yes, this really is on pay-per-view. Um, the Creatures, two masked jobbers, the type that you normally see on worldwide tapings. Uh, according to Wikipedia, one of them was perennial jobber Joey Mags under the mask. Uh, despite being called the Rap Master, PN News is billed for Motown, you know, the, the home of rap. Um, and he really can't rap. It is quite painful. Um, as, as someone who was a freestyle rapper of very briefly in a former life, it, it's not rap, trust me. Um, him and Josh are referred to by Ross as the odd couple of WCW. Um, News hits quite an impressive looking dropkick for a man of his size. Josh hits a mice looking German suplex. 
Um, I love how they're making out he's a rookie in the wrestling business, despite Matt Ball being around at WrestleMania 1. Um, news misses an avalanche in the corner. This is pretty, but apart from that, this is pretty much a total squash that the crowd is dead for. Um, Josh hits his northern exposure sit-down splash, and News falls off the top rope into a splash um, for the win in about five minutes. And the replay does show that Josh jumps on News's back during the pinfall and accidentally kicks him in the back of the head. <laughs> What, not much to say on this one, really, is it? It's a squash match or the pay-per-view. Well, well I don't know in any other company that Lumberjack would be friends with a rapper. I think, I think it's, I think it's awesome. I, I'm a big, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big fan and friend of uh, of News, but I think he looked, he looked like Heavy D dressed dressed as a lime. He, he looked fucking ridiculous. And uh, yeah, like I said, it was, uh, yeah, it's a quarter of a star nothing match, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, he he made much, had a much more of a career over in in Europe after this, didn't he? Yeah, he's a he's a big stiff motherfucker, man. He's a he's a, a, a big drinking, loud talking, uh, big round headed Liverpool supporting fuck. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I love him, and I think yeah, I think he was um, he had a really good uh, he, a relationship with Vader. In fact, they they did a great series of matches together. Um, and um, yeah, I thought he was quite underrated, but I don't. The PNU thing was fucking horrendous, and uh, you know, he was never. No, that was never going to work. No, that that was the problem. I think he just he. You could tell he wasn't comfortable in the gimmick. Yeah, man, it was it was shockingly bad. Yeah. I remember when he showed up in ECW for a cup of coffee as one of the baldies. Do you remember that? Yeah, man. Late ECW, they had that gimmick where just Adidas wearing street thugs who. We were basically fodder for New Jack in those style of matches, which obviously led to all sorts of horrible things happening in 2000 when uh, they just thought they'd put every pay-per-view, they'd have a, a balcony dive on every pay-per-view. Yes. Uh, but yeah, he, he didn't last for it, probably because they asked him to do the balcony spot and he was like, fuck that. But who knows? But yeah, that's the most interesting thing I have to say about this match and has nothing to do with the match. And yeah, there's there's bad wrestling, there's offensive wrestling. This is just, just a, a weird, but at least it's short. And the work, yes. the, 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 you know, the guy, the guys work. They, you know, they kept hustling for five minutes. It's just a weird fucking match. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, the one good thing about this this show is that we do crack on with the matches in quite quick succession. There isn't that much uh, stuff you know, between the matches, which hasn't always happened on WCW shows. Yeah, eleven matches on a three-hour paper. You kind of have to, don't you? Yeah. Uh, match number three is Bobby Eaton versus Terence Taylor. Um, billed as a rankings match in WCW's top 10. Um, Eaton, we're told, has his sights set on the TV title. Um, and Taylor is accompanied by Alexandre York, who, which was uh, Terry Runnell's first uh, wrestling gimmick. Um, he's billed as the computerized man of the 1990s, one of many failed gimmicks. They tried to make people forget about the Red Rooster. Note, they never forgot about the Red Rooster. <laughs> um, Eaton's in complete control for the opening few minutes of the match, landing some characteristically crisp offence. Uh, the match spills to the ramp, where Eaton hits an atomic drop, which sends Taylor bouncing into the ropes. He then body slams Taylor onto the hard ramp before climbing to the top rope and landing a knee drop, which was hugely spectacular move for its time, a knee drop from the top rope to the ramp. Um, eventually, the tide turns as Eaton gets pulled out of the ring onto the floor, gets his back rammed into the still connecting rod in the turnbuckle. Um, Taylor then consults with Ms. York, who shows him something on her computer screen. Um, this was pre-internet, so it's not what you're thinking, Liam. Um, 
the, the uh, action goes back onto the ramp and Taylor hits what's now called a blue thunder bomb, but it's just called a power bomb here, which again seems totally out of place as just a move in the middle of a match, but it looks spectacular. Um, Taylor lands a top rope splash, but only gets a two count. Uh, Ross makes mention of how Taylor made it into the WCW top 10 this week for the first time. Um, Eaton gets a near fall with a top rope sunset flip, which gets the crowd up on their feet. And a few moments later, Eaton counters a backdrop with a swinging neck breaker. He climbs to the top for his Alabama jam, but Taylor cuts him off. Taylor then attempts a superplex, but Eaton counters that, sending Taylor flying to the canvas with the right hand. And Eaton finally hits the Alabama jam top rope leg drop for the win after exactly 16 minutes. Stu, what do you think of this one? Yeah, I was not. I love Bobby Eaton anyway. I think Bobby Eaton's awesome. Mm. Nice to see him in a singles match, and nice to see like someone begging, begging off against him because normally that's his that's his shtick, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, and also, are you, are you surprised you didn't mention uh, Terry Taylor's locks as well because uh, he had the dark hair in that. So it looked like, looked like a sort of early Triple H, and they were trying to get rid of uh, the Red Rooster uh, thing, as you say, which never really did work, but. Um, I thought that Bobby Eaton stuff's amazing. Like I say the knee drop to the outside, absolutely miles ahead of its time. And uh, yeah, sweet, good match. I mean, if you ask me, the, the the smart thing would have probably been to have stuck this either straight after the Chamber of Horrors or maybe even right before it as the actual opener. Uh, um, to be honest, I'm guessing that it's a logistical issue starting with a cage match. Yes. We've yeah. seen that. Not not every time. Some, some companies do run the, uh, the cage gimmick in the middle of a show and they can get, get it down, get it up, etc. Like pretty fine without taking up too much time. But as we said, 11 matches, so time was tight and they absolutely decided for whatever reason that the Chamber of Horrors and 11 matches in total was the way they were going to go. So this is where we are. But at least if you stick this after the cage match, you've, you're giving the, the fans something to sink their teeth into. And it's the, the, you know, it wasn't a great crowd all night, but this is the closest they come to starting to wake up a little bit. And it, it's a good match. If we're going to take the argument that, you know, any given pay-per-view card needs a nice bit of variety, not everything can be a, a, a four or five-star Mac Classic, nor should it be on the show. And this is providing that. You know, you've got you've got a decent bit of wrestling. You've got your, your hocus-pocus with the Chamber of Horrors. So we've got that mix already. <laughs> i tell you the other thing I, I liked about this is the whole concept. And again, this is something I remember from the weekly TV show, the whole concept of the, the WCW top 10. Because basically what you've got here is essentially a meaningless wrestling match. There's there's nothing on the line. And ordinarily it would just be, well, you just want to win the match because you want to win the match. But what they do now is they've said, you know, Taylor's just broken into the WCW top 10. It's all about rankings and all about ratings. And you can put, a match between two people in that top 10 for, you know, to get higher up the ladder. And I, I thought it was a really good idea. I wish more people would do it. Uh, well, you say that Dean and yet WWE actually tried to bust out top 10 rankings earlier this year on SmackDown. And it went down like a lead balloon. I'm sure uh, poor, poor use of it was one of those reasons it, off the top of my head. The only time it was ever made a thing was there was a, I think there was a bit of a bickering between, Bobby Roode, Randy Orton and Jinder Mahal over rankings and then it led to their multi-man match at WrestleMania. It was about as interesting as it sounds. But to be honest, I mean, obviously you don't want the typical WWE way of uh, this is the match that's happening, fuck you and buy some merchandise. 
uh, rationale of things coming together. But I think the New Japan Pro Wrestling, for instance, policy and a lot of other Japanese promotions use it. I think the whole business model of having tag team matches on tours where you know champions eat a pinfall, have a bit of friction with someone, or or they spend a few months building someone up with a, with a with a little streak of results that puts them in line for a title shot seems to be just the uh, it's the best middle ground. It's not too formal like a top 10, which makes it really hard to actually try and keep it legitimate and really track it when you want to use a bit of creative license in wrestling and uh, and not having any plan at all, which is what we see all too much at WWE. I think the New Japan way is right bang in the middle. and that, That's why the top 10 is never going to come back. And so, you know, we remember it fondly from those early 90s WCW days, but it's not as if it was a rousing success for them either. Fair enough. Okay, we'll move on. Match number four. Uh, Jimmy Garvin with Michael Hayes in his corner versus Johnny B. Bad with Teddy Long or Theodore R. Long in his corner. Um, we are told that Hayes was scheduled to wrestle, but he's suffering from an injury. So Fight. Garvin took his place. Spoilers. Um, yeah. That seems, yeah, seems to be the theme of the evening of uh, people being replaced by other people. Um, Hayes does have his right arm in a sling. Um Ross tells us the crowd is split in their support, and literally moments later, a massive freebird chant starts up. Um, the feeling out process ends with uh, Garvin spectacularly hip tossing Bad over the top rope. When Bad gets up, Hayes taps him on the shoulder and then levels him with a thunderous right hand, puts his arm back in its sling, and winks at the camera as the crowd erupts once again. Um, I'm sure we've seen this happen with the Freebirds at a previous Halloween Havoc. Um, Teddy Long distracts the ref to allows Bad to choke Garvin with a towel. Bad comes off the top rope and gets caught with a left to the stomach. Everyone's countering everyone else's offensive moves. Uh, the two men collide in midair as Ross says that both of them are going for a leapfrog. Garvin nails Bad with a DDT, but Long is once again distracting the ref. Bad gets straight up from the DDT and hits Garvin with a left hand for the pin after eight minutes. Hayes then lamps Teddy Long for good measure. Um, who says it's only the modern wrestlers who don't sell stuff? Uh, and uh, it was an odd match. Didn't really flow, but it is reasonably entertaining. What do you think, Stu? Well, I, I think after... After you know the the partisan southern crowd have just uh, been praying for the blood of a, 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 a fat black guy getting fried in the cage, it was nice for them to be able to be a bit more liberal and cheer on two flaming homosexuals in a, in, in a very colourful gimmick in WCW. <laughs> and if you notice, the Freebirds are baby faces here apparently, but Garvin's really trying to look less gay by dressing in leather. Well, I- I was I was confused about like whether uh, whether Johnny B Bad was um, was face or heel here because he was kind of getting cheered but he had a manager distracting things. I mean, on the timeline of things, Liam was this just before he turned face or just after or what? Well, they've paired him up with Teddy Long. They are aiming for a heel thing, and obviously, as Stu says in in a way that only Stu can pull off. Uh, his his persona, his his characteristics are, are clear. You know, this is early 90s. They're clearly trying to get the less than tolerant people in the audience to, to have a pop at Johnny B. Bad with some of that. And uh, ironically, as Stu also says, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that the Freebirds had also done themselves in the past. And as we noticed on a couple of these pay-per-views we've already covered, they, they did it after Halloween Havoc 91 as well, whenever they were... Because they were pretty much shoehorned 
face or heel. Depending on the assignment, they bounced between. They they were the ultimate tweeners of the early nineties, really, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Case in point, uh, they want to get bad over here as a heel, and they want uh, Jimmy Garvin to get the sympathy in the match. Why they couldn't have used a, a more dependable babe face, who the fuck knows? But this is WCW we're talking about. Anyway, Garvin's in the match, and this is why he's got Hayes out with him. Rather than coming out on his own, uh, they figured that Hayes would get people cheering the free, but because, you know, he is more charismatic than Garvin, and the, the little the little sticks he's pulling on the outside, are, are just, they're just proof of that. So it yeah. worked in that sense. Also, apparently... The reason why he had a completely fake injury, he was not injured at all, not just for the gag, but not in any way whatsoever. But um, he was scheduled to fight Van Hammer later on the show. And someone actually realised that if they had Michael Hayes versus Van Hammer, only one person was going to get cheered in that match. And it wasn't going it wasn't to be, be the over-pushed, despised, clueless yeah. green oaf. Bless him. I, I liked Van Hammer in like 99. We, we covered that on one of the pay-per-views, I think, with Ash Rose. And yes. we'll get to him again. You know, he's, he ended up being, you know, acceptably mediocre. But at this point, he's just been rammed down everyone's throats and he's fucking horrendous. So, yeah, they realised that would not be a smart move. And that's where we are. So it, they are trying to do the Johnny B. Bad thing as a heel. But you, you had to think that given that yeah, you know, you know he's, he, he's got personality, even though he's still learning at this point. He can tell he's he's not quite there yet. Uh, he's got personality in everything he does. You could tell he's going to come around to the babyface side at some point. And true to form, he did. And he did get a lot better in the ring as well. And as we've mentioned many times, Dino, uh, Johnny B. Bad in the mid-90s was a pleasure to watch in WCW. Very good. Very good indeed, yes. Um, also, just just worth mentioning, there is still one further piece of uh, horrendous racism the, to cover uh, regarding this show, although it's actually in the build-up of a match and not the match itself. So uh, stay tuned for that, <laughs> blatant 90s racism fans. Um, Missy Hyatt is backstage again. She's still trying to find out who the uh, Halloween phantom is. She accosts Bobby Eaton, but he says he doesn't know. He says he's just won his match, and apparently he's off to celebrate with a pumpkin. Uh, the mind boggles. Um, still, unlike other WW pay-per-views we've, we've reviewed, as we've said, this one is all about the matches. And uh, it's now time for match number five, which is for the World Television Championship. Stunning Steve Austin uh, defends his title against Dustin Rhodes. Um, Austin is accompanied, as ever, by Lady Blossom, a.k.a. Jeannie Clark from Southend. Um, Rhodes comes down to different music and a less spangly jacket than we've seen before, where while Austin is wearing trunks with a pattern that resembles a pair of Bermuda shorts that I owned at around about the same time. <laughs> um, the action starts fast with Rhodes taking Austin down with a big clothesline before Austin slows the pace with the head scissors. Uh, Ross talks about how Austin came from nowhere, i.e. outside of WCW, and won the TV title within weeks of joining the promotion. So I actually looked this up because, you know, that's kind of geek I am. And um, he wrestled his first match for WCW on the 13th of May, 91, just 10 days after his last match for the USWA. And he won the WCW TV title from Bobby Eaton, a TV taping recorded three weeks later, although it didn't air for another three weeks after that. So in TV terms, it was six weeks. Um, plus, uh, in typical WCW fashion, they recorded a successful title defense against Brian Pillman the day before they recorded him actually winning the TV title from Eaton at the same venue. And uh, 
Stu, for five points, why did they do that? Oh, because WCW. Yay! There we go. There I'm paying attention. There We're we going to ram this joke into the ground. Yeah. Instantly, I then got caught down the terrible rabbit hole on cagematch.net where I was looking up the jobbers that were on the, the, the jobbers that we knew and loved from that time, like Sonny Trout, Bob Cook, and Rick Thames, and finding them wrestling on like various independent shows where they wrestled each other and sometimes won. Um, but that's an entirely different subject. <laughs> um, Rhodes picks the pace up and he clotheslines Austin over the top rope to the floor. Rhodes then signals for his bulldog finisher, which Ross tells us he can hit from anywhere, but Rhodes pushes him off. Um, five minutes is called. There's 10 minutes to go as per all TV title matches. Um, it also appears that the pervy cameraman who is employed at every single World Cup football tournament is working here in WCW as he keeps zooming in on Lady Blossom's tits. <laughs> um, back in the ring and Austin is back to the head scissors again, slowing things down. Rhodes misses a running cross body block and bounces off the canvas onto the floor, a trademark Dustin Rhodes spot. Uh, you think you'd have learned by now, but then again, Ric Flair went to the top rope unsuccessfully for decades, I suppose. Um, Austin lays in a few punches to Rhodes on the floor, and before you know it, Rhodes is bleeding. It must be genetic, I guess. Um, Austin actually does a tremendous job of getting his body in the way of the camera and the fans' view to stop anyone seeing Dustin getting his blade out. Um, Rhodes walks around ringside, dazed, gets clobbered with an axe handle off the top from Austin. With 10 minutes gone, they're back in the ring, and Austin has a chin lock on with added leverage provided by the ropes. Um, Ross is speculating that Austin might just run the clock down. Um, And anytime Rhodes mounts some offense, Austin just cuts him off. Um, Shivani then contradicts Ross by saying how Austin wants to win and not just run the clock down and not have to defend against Dustin Rhodes again. Um, Austin gets thrown to the outside. Rhodes runs him headfirst into the ring post. And now Austin is bleeding with two minutes to go in the time limit. A power slam from Rhodes gets a two count, but the crowd don't seem all that into it. Rhodes runs Austin off the ropes, connects with a bionic elbow for another two count. Some more pinfall attempts are unsuccessful. A top rope clothesline doesn't get covered in time and the 15 minute mark expires although Austin kicked out anyway um, and the time limit draw gets booed by the fans as we go straight to an advert for the next pay-per-view Starcade 91 the lethal lottery and man oh man we got to do that one in a future episode because we'll have a fucking field day uh, Stu what do you think of this one I love I, I love uh, Steve Austin I think he's an awesome worker I, I, I hated fucking Dustin Rhodes, man. I think he's a, uh, other than a very early when he began doing the gold dust thing, which was such a different thing, it did such a change for him. I kind of dug that, but I always thought, he, I th- and I still think he's an unathletic looking fuck. He's just, it's like a deck chair, you know, always been blown over in the wind. He's just, he's all arms and legs. I just can't feel, he hasn't got, he hasn't got the charisma of his father and he hasn't got the athleticism of his younger brother. Fucking awful. Um, but the match, in, that, in actual fact, saying that wasn't bad. Um, it was a typical WCW, uh, like a TV title match. And a, but, but it was a good match other than the last so three to five minutes, which felt like they were phoning it in a bit to kill time. Oh, man. This, see, a lot of people really like this match. And I understand why. But for me, it's, it's, I, I look at it as more of a great audition than a great match per se because on the one hand you've got two guys in their in their wcw rookie them 
in Steve Austin and Dustin Rhodes who really show something in this. They show, you know, expert performing. They show really good work rate. They show that that, that star quality you need. And, yeah, I've got, I've got to disagree on Dustin Rhodes. He was never going to be a top guy anywhere, but he's always been very, very good in a lot of ways. He's always been a great hand. Sort of guy you want to fill a roster with, really. Uh, and although his, his, his physique wasn't great at times, there were times he got really lean, like when he came back to WWE in the, in the early 2000s, he got in great shape. Uh, they brought him back. For I never a... remember him in great shape, to be fair. Well, they brought him back to be like a, a, one of the, you know, one the entrance in the Royal Rumble that just makes it a little bit wild, a little bit different. Because mm. they had like him and Mr. Perfect and, that and a few mm. others. And he showed up, in such good shape and with such a degree of professionalism, he got another contract. And it was through that contract we got the Booker T uh, tandem and a few other. He, he was there for a few years. So, um, yeah, he's... So, so, side note aside, he, for me and for a lot of people, he's always been very, very good. And he started to prove that here, considering the fact that he did go into it with the, the cloud of, of nepotism, with a with a father who, who not only always had an element of control in wrestling, but had a track record of pushing his friends and looking after his friends. People thought to themselves, yeah, he's going to get shoved down our throat. But here we are. Him and this upstart from Texas show the world that, uh, yeah, they, they've got all the makings to make up the rankings and be big players in WCW, you know, as long as the company doesn't go on year after year of tremendous fuck-ups or anything like that. Um, but the match perish itself... The yeah, perish the fall. But the match itself does nothing for me. And one of the main reasons for that, we brought up several times before whenever this happens, and it happens on a lot of WCW shows, and it happened a lot in the NWA before it, so it's not just a WCW problem, is the time limit draw, especially when it comes to the TV title. Fuck it, seriously. You cannot get into these matches when three quarters of them are the hill running down the clock and it's never even in that dramatic a way that clamours the comeback the comeback is always by the numbers they always hit their finisher just in the nick of time before the bell sounds but before they can actually get the the, the cover it happens every time and and as you said the crowd was flat even you know they did two really good blade jobs for nothing Really? Well, I didn't understand why Austin bled up with two minutes to go in the match. It didn't add anything to it. Yeah, it's a, it's a common thing where you have the babyface bleed early and then the heel controls, but then you have to come back and the heel bleeds as you know to bring that comeuppance level and, and then they're both in the same place for the big finishing stretch theoretically. But again, it's something that just doesn't get conveyed in a by the numbers TV title time limit draw. So it kills that as well. Uh, so I, I really don't like this match categorically more than as a as an, a verbal assault on the people involved because, as I said, for me it was a great audition. This match proved that these two gentlemen would be really good in the business. Obviously, one was went into Supernova, and not only that, but I mean Dave Meltzer said in his review of this show that it, you know if anyone has the qualities to be the next in line after Ric Flair which is high price, it's Steve Austin. Uh, and, and Dustin Rhodes has, has been employed everywhere you could ask. And before he was fired from WCW four years later, he, he had some great brawls, some great matches. You know, he, he'd soon entered the tag team title scene not long after this. And, oh. you know, that tag team title scene was, was great. So I mean, I would say on the, on the subject of Dustin Rhodes, 
I, I, I kind of meet you both halfway. I would say that he's never had the greatest body, which is why he's been put in the bodysuit. But I mean, I, I had the pleasure of working a show up in Doncaster for one PW with him. Absolute gentleman, total pro. Bought me a drink in the bar afterwards. Thanks very much. Um, but I think the 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 gold dust. He has evolved that character and he's he's kept it running for many years. And and like you said, Liam, the Booker T Gold Dust tag team was you know, comedy gold. The guy does have charisma, but totally uh, yeah, totally different kind of character to his to his brother. Um, and I, I personally, I prefer I prefer Dustin to Cody, but it's you know it's different strokes for different folks, I guess. But look, look at the impact that all three of them have had on this business. I think that's what you oh, measure yeah. it by. Don't, don't measure it by how many titles they've held in, in a situation where, you know, for the most part, it's someone's deciding who holds the titles, etc. Et look, at, look at what they've done. And, and the, the work that Cody Rhodes is doing now is so important for the future of the industry. Whatever yes. way you've seen it from a, from a preference point of view, I can see why it polarizes. But it's great to see him groundbreaking rather than just being another Chris Masters or someone after coming out yeah. of WWE. Uh, Dust, Dusty Rhodes had left such a legacy. It's incredible. And and Dustin Rhodes, you think his, his time in WCW was, was great. He, he pretty much, it was a very simple gimmick. Pretty, he was pretty much the son of Dusty, and yet he made yeah. that work. He had, he, even though, we, as we said before, we were getting sick of him always just wrestling whoever was managed by Colonel Robert Parker, they really stretched that one out. But he would go out there and he would have compelling brawls for the most part until the black top bully ruined that and helped yes. him get fired. Uh, and yeah, the Goldust thing carried that on. Wherever he went, he had a tremendous work ethic. And yeah, I think the, this match was pivotal in, in as far as history goes as showing... A lot of people in power backstage and a lot of fans watching the Steve Austin and Dustin Rhodes weren't just going to be flashes in the pan. They're both two very important members of this industry, you know, as as long as they weren't both fired by WCW four years later. I was going to say Eric Bischoff's in the country at the moment. If you can find him, you can tell him that. Um, I, I don't think he can find anything. Last I checked, he was getting lost on his way to fucking Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're not messing around. We're straight into match number six. It's Oz versus Bill Kazmaier. Oh. <laughs> yes. So Kevin Nash with dyed platinum blonde hair and a big green robe and luminous green tights comes down to the ring. Uh, legit strongman competitor Bill Kazmaier. I mean, I remember him from like the world's strongest man on New Year's Day on the BBC. Um, he comes to the ring carrying a large, awkward-looking giant globe on his shoulders. Um, somehow I doubt this would be a technical classic. Um, Shivani tells us that Cactus Jack was the original scheduled opponent, but he was added to the earlier uh, Chamber of Horrors match. So Kevin Nash got what I believe was his first pay-per-view match. Um, after a few shoulder checks, Oz calls for a test of strength with Kazmaier that lasts for ages and is performed to virtual silence. Uh, this is the very definition of filler and what happens when you put loads of your top performers in an absolute clusterfuck at the beginning of the show, as we have mentioned. Um, Oz hits a belly-to-back suplex that folds Kazmaier in half. Kazmaier later skins the cat to get back in the ring as whilst he's chucked out, and he hoists Oz up into an over-the-shoulder backbreaker that's quite similar to uh, Lex Luger's torture rack, um, although Luger doesn't use that anymore. Um, so it was, yeah, about three minutes long, reasonably quick, reasonably inoffensive. Well, the highlight for me was Jim Ross 
fighting for superlatives on the mic with things like, both these guys' level of skill is actually very similar. You're not fucking kidding, Jim. Fucking, <laughs> there's nothing there at all. It was, uh, like I said, I was, I was impressed with Kazmar could skin the cat, to be fair. Mm. <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, uh, again, that's the sort of match that'll make, uh, it'll make anyone throw up in their mouth, and it? it's pretty bad. <laughs> you, you hear a lot of scenarios when someone watches a wrestling match, and they say, oh, if they'd have given that match more time, it would have been this, it would have been that. In this case, if they'd have given this match more time, it would have been the worst match of the fucking year. As a result, yes. because it was under three minutes, it was get through it and then move on without ever recollecting it ever again. And unless someone gets you to cover it on your podcast, cheers, Stu. Um, but yeah, oh my God. I think the only thing you can get out of this in, in a positive way is there is a certain pleasure knowing what Kevin Nash did. I was going to say what Kevin Nash did for wrestling, more like what Kevin Nash did to wrestling. And especially what he did to WCW in the later years, there is something gratifying about watching him get bounced around like this. So, other than that, yeah, latest muscle head, they're desperately trying to make a start, even though he can't wrestle for shit. Check. Bye bye. Done. Until okay. the next match. Until yes, the next, next match. Match number seven is Van Hammer v Doug Summers. Oh, yes. Oh, it's, yeah. it's literally a WCW squash match on pay per view. So, uh, Van Hammer comes out with his guitar that he obviously can't play, um, accompanied for some reason by two blokes with jackhammer drills, seemingly drilling into the stage. Um, again, I want to just emphasize the point that someone in authority had to approve all of these things. Um, his opponent is veteran Doug Summers, an old AWA stalwart, and the man who's clearly been brought in to make Hammer look good, or try and make Hammer look good. Um, Van Hammer somehow manages to fuck up a clothesline for his opening <laughs> offensive move. I'm not sure how you do that, but he mentioned it somehow by standing to the left of Doug Summers but throwing the clothesline with his right hand. It was very odd. Um, he throws Summers into the turnbuckle so hard that he almost loses, that Summers almost loses his footing. Um, he then sets up his finisher, the slingshot suplex, which he also manages to fuck up because he doesn't place enough of Summers' body on the ropes, meaning mm. that Summers nearly lands on his head. Um, it's so bad they don't even show the finisher on the replay. It's a one-minute squash, yet... To, for a match of 1 minute 13 seconds to be that bad was, was quite the accomplishment. Van, Van Hammer, to, I always thought he looked the fucking, he, he looked the bollocks, he looked phenomenal. Oh, but yeah, that, it looked great. But it was all like, like Jim Cornette says, until the bell rung, and then that was, that was it. But he, he had a slight, he had a bit of a falling in that match, so it wasn't devoid of any heat at all, was it? Yeah, he was he was getting the, the big push, and he hadn't been exposed to the point that people could see that he couldn't go really no exactly but um yeah absolutely uh, just horrible and like i say so far in the show you've probably had about three matches that that you'd normally expect to see on something like uh, the main event or saturday night yeah good so, old worldwide on itv yeah exactly so pretty bad but the alarming thing is if if they'd have uh scrapped this match and scrapped kazmaier versus oz they would have only had Eight or nine matches on a three-hour paper. You can't have that, can you? That was that's what makes it even more befuddling. There was it's not like 
they desperately had to put together these matches to fill the quota. Eight matches is fine. You, seven is fine, to be honest. And they've insisted on doing it this way. I, I don't know why. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose there's a whole idea of a showcasing. But as we know, I mean, it shouldn't take the benefit of hindsight to know that you're not showcasing, you're fucking exposing. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Michael Hayes dodged a bullet, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't know that was the scheduled match, but you know you're absolutely right. That that, that crowd would have crucified Van Hammer. Oh God, that would have been brutal. Yes. For a okay. nice warm fuzzy feeling from December fuddling as well. Takes me <laughs> back. Thanks for that. <laughs> okay, it's now time to crown the inaugural WCW World Light Heavyweight Champion following a tournament that had been running on WCW Worldwide. Uh, it's worth bearing in mind that the tournament only had seven competitors, with Pillman receiving a bye in the first round and included TV jobbers Johnny Rich and Mike Graham in there. Ah. So this is Brian Pillman against Richard Morton with Alexandra York. Um, it's a parade of amazing mullets. Um, Nick Patrick is back wearing the referee camera and looks like an idiot. This, this should, though, be a, a great match. Um, after a cautious start, Pillman gains the early advantage with a body slam and a spin kick that sends Morton out of the ring. Um, Pillman is outsmarting and outspeeding Morton early on. Pillman's then going back to the headlock as Ross puts over the reason for this approach being the fact that neither man wants to make a mistake and lose the chance of being the first ever champion. Um, Pillman's in control till Morton counters a leapfrog attempt into an inverted atomic drop, which Pillman sells big time. Uh, Morton remains in control with an armbar, which he holds on for a long time. Pillman tries to get things back to a vertical base, but immediately gets grounded again by Morton, who goes back to the arm. Uh, back to a vertical base again. Pillman turns the tide with an enziguri and a backdrop. Both men collide with a body check, and they both fall out of the ring on different sides of the ring, which I don't think I've ever seen before. Um, Pillman gets his shoulder rammed into the ring post. Back in the ring, Morton's arguing with the ref about something which allows Pillman to climb to the top rope and land a cross-body block for the title-winning pin out of nowhere. Well, that, 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 was, that was like the debut of that light heavyweight title, wasn't it? And it was... It was yeah. uh... A pretty dreadful debut for it. Why the fuck you would put Ricky Morton as a heel is anyone's guess. Mm. Um, because he was like, you know, the, uh, you know, he was the quintessential uh, like, like a white meat baby face, wasn't he? So he, yeah, he was the baby face in peril in the tag matches. Wasn't yeah, he? why the hell they do that? I don't know. Because I, you know, everyone used to say about oh, how much charisma he had, but obviously, clearly not not enough charisma to better carry off uh, carry off playing the villain because it was bloody awful. Um, and like I say, the the, the one time that the, the, that title actually did is get everyone's attention was when they brought in Jushin Liger. Mm. And uh, then that was really cool. But that match, not good. Not good. Well, like I said, when you've got a seven-man tournament that includes two TV jobbers, it's not really putting the belt over very well. No, no, horrendous. And that really annoys me. Oh, uh, they want to make up... You know, we, we live in... We watch a... A hobby where you know wrestling companies make up tournaments that never happened. Rio de Janeiro, for instance. So there's a lot of creative license here, and if they're gonna decide, right, let's fill out this tournament with two TV jobbers, and yet they couldn't find a third to make it a proper eight, that really grinds my gears. 
Maybe it's the well, OCD, or maybe it really is just a, 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 an amazing twist of logic that they're actually going to fill it out with, with warm bodies, and yet they can't just add one more warm body on but, top of the two they're already using to make it an eight-man fucking tournament. That shows where the heads are. You know, and, yeah. and no one's going to take something seriously that the company doesn't take seriously. As for the match, yeah, so Prime Pillman's just come back from injury. And by the looks of this match, he's come back too early. And as you guys said, because uh, he's facing someone just so hideously miscast, this this was almost death for the division before it started. But as you said, Stu Jushin Liger really helped. Then we had a couple of, of shows, including a pay-per-view in WrestleWar 92, where the light heavyweight division got a lot of showcase. It was almost It was almost like a reverse of this pay-per-view where a great big multi-man cage match has, has taken half the the main stars of the roster and you need to fill out the rest of the card. And not only did WrestleWord fill out the rest of the card better, obviously their big multi-man cage match was brilliant. Uh, this one, on the other hand, is a terrible cage match and a terrible way of filling out the rest of the card. So it is the anti-WrestleWord. But uh, they, but that, that that's just one side note. So the, the the light heavyweight division did recover a little bit uh, with Wrestle War. I think he had like four uh, light heavyweight matches, including yeah, a really good title. Pillman v Zank, wasn't it? Yeah, it? had a really good title, good title match, yeah. match. There were contendership matches. Remember Scotty Flamingo put himself next in line with a match. There was a couple of other ones. So it looked like something important. But this match really came close to, to killing the idea dead in the water. And the only thing that ca- that delivered a, a more fatal blow to the entire division was Bill Watts opening Bill his Watts. mouth at any given point. Was it these guys might not be as big, but they're really good or something along those lines? Oh, just the most patronising yeah. shit come out of his fucking pull the ladder up bigoted mouth can you, can you imagine can you imagine if WCW had a women's division under Bill Watts that'd be horrendous well, I was just going to say that's about the same sort of stuff that they're actually doing to this day isn't it oh you know they're, they're, they're trying really hard they're trying their best them girls bless them it's like that they're alright for women yeah Yeah, they're, they're, they're actually doing that though every week on the WWE yeah I, th- I think Bill Watts was actually otherwise engaged on this particular show I think he was serving as the cameraman during the Steve Austin match <laughs> I meant to, to weigh in on that because uh, yeah that, that, oh my god we, we I get the whole directive make sure you get the beautiful people in the camera shot but yeah normally they're so much more subtle with it where they'll yeah. get they'll get a manager cheering on their man who just happens to be wearing a really low cut top but but yeah that cameraman was basically just going straight for the boobs and then it would look up at her face and she'd look at the camera and give it a wink and it goes back down to the boobs so that was yeah I think Bill Watts was in charge of that yeah the, the thing I was going to say about the tournament though is like why they couldn't have got either got someone international in just for a match or even just got an indie guy in and pretended they're from somewhere else. Like they did when they did the Starcade 90 tournament and they had like Rocco Rock as one half of an alleged South African tag team. You know, just bring people in just to knock them off. But I don't know. Anyway, 
It's time we'll, we'll, we'll change gears here because it gets good now. It's time for the mysterious WCW Halloween Phantom to uh, come out. And Eric Bischoff and Missy Hart have both failed to establish his identity. So Tom Zenk comes out as his opponent. He looks enthusiastic. And as we've established before, Liam, he is great in this role. He showed that against Big Van Vader at the Great American Bash 1990. If you want someone to put a new debuting heel over and look great in the process, you want Tom Zenk. Um, the Phantom comes down to the ring in a black cape and hat covering his face. He's also wearing a full black bodysuit. Uh, Jim Ross says that he can't place who this man is, um, despite the fact that his distinctive face looks so blatantly like Rick Rude with Rick Rude's moustache poking through the mask. The Phantom attacks Zenk before the bell can ring with an almighty clothesline. Zenk has a brief flow of offense with some punches and a drop kick, but the Phantom cuts him off with a knee to the midsection and a neck breaker. You, you know, Rick Rude's famous finishing move. The commentators still can't work out who this man who has Rick Rude's dark eyes, moustache, finishing move and wiry body shape are. But then Shivani does twig and says that there's a well-known finishing move, if I may call it, uh, the Rude Awakening. And... Uh, Jesus, tap dancing Christ, we have a winner. Tony Schiavone, please come to the reception to claim your prize. Yeah, like you say, the, the, Tony Schiavone being the shit that he would have said, hey, that, that finishing looks just like the Rude Awakening. That's spoiling the reveal 15 minutes before it happens. But uh, a lot of people reckon that the Black Scorpion, that sh should have been that. Um, which, in, in hindsight, probably wouldn't have been a bad thing. What, ju just, do you mean what, as... Should have been Rick Rude, or should have been yeah, should have been the Rick Rude doing it. I don't think he was available. I know, he I know he really? left. Yeah, I know he left WWE in late 1990. But even if he did leave just before Starcade, I'm pretty sure he was tied up contractually, and it would I'll have been and, and it would have been cutting it fine anyway, even if he was completely free and clear. But I'm al I'm almost certain he was tied up in red tape for a little while uh, after leaving. I was going to oh, say. But also, I was going to say, um, yeah, it was sort of the summer of nine. It was the summer of nineteen ninety or, or autumn, autumn of nineteen ninety. Yeah, so he, he did. He did TV he tapings been, where he was yeah. uh, starting his next feud with the Big Boss Man. Yes, so I think his ninety day no compete would have uh, would have allowed him to. But the other thing was that they'd already. Um, They'd already started the Black Scorpion gimmick by this point in WCW. Now, admittedly, they'd started it without actually knowing how it was going to finish. So oh, yeah. Did. So they could have got Rick Rude in. And I totally agree with you, Stu, that he would have been a much better choice than, than what happened in the end. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yes. But, um, but yeah. They... Not possible. Not no. possible. So the guy in the car, going back to the... Uh, sorry, sorry, uh, Liam. Going back to the uh, Chamber of Horrors match, the the guy who came out of the coffin that also had nothing to do with the Black Scorpion. Or is that right? Yeah, no, that that was the WCW Halloween Phantom, who that because ah. they they hyped up on TV that this mysterious guy was making his debut, and yeah, as I said, is why he even had to have a cameo during the Chamber of Horrors is mind-boggling. I'm I'm not even sure if that was actually. I'm, I'm guessing they stuck someone else in the outfit. Rather than troubling Rude with such a needless cameo. Yeah, the guy, the guy in the co coming out of the coffin was just a sort of a small, a small guy in plain black tights. Whereas yeah, this, I mean they, this... they almost missed it on the actual pay per view itself. Yeah, and a plain black mask. Whereas this, this one is a full black bodysuit and a half black and half white mask. So, There's yeah. so many, so many fucking ambiguous 
like you know weird, weird looking guys in black masks. I don't know who the folks who is. It just it just leads to confusion. That was my point earlier. It's just absolutely yeah. no reason to that cameo in the cage. You just just do this here because you've got a top grade squash. You've got a top grade reveal that we'll get into obviously, uh, and you don't need that. But the reason why I want to emphasis is emphasize this is because despite this seemingly being a thing that WCW got absolutely spot on, it's been brought to my attention that something about this whole thing is just so fucking WCW. Uh, so you think they've got, you know, they've, they've set up this, this, this squash and this reveal just about as good as you can to, to establish a, a, a new top hill. Here's the thing. Uh, as it turns out, Tom Zenk, who's getting crushed in this match, who, you know, as we say, he does a good job in doing this. But there's one problem for WCW, is that they're planning, after Havoc 91, they are planning on running several house shows over the next few weeks, main evented by Lex Luger defending the WCW title against Tom Zenk. God. They then pull out a pay-per-view where he gets crushed in 90 seconds. By Rick Rude, okay, but still, he's crushed in 90 seconds. Dean, you've booked, you've been around wrestling all your life, you, you've managed, you know. You don't squash your fucking challenger to anyone. Well, I, I get the feeling that if Stu had uh, someone challenging for the EWW title on a show in a couple of months' time, he wouldn't have them losing a minute and a half this time around. Ah, shit, it's crashes. It's, it's booking 101, isn't it? So there you go. Even something that seems really well done by WCW, they still managed to find a way to, you know, WCW it. Oh, but it's... If you think of one of the biggest problems, and it was a recurring thing because... Obviously, in the mid-90s, WCW's hash show business was brilliant because they finally hit their stride. They found that magic formula. They beat WWE in the ratings for, for 83 weeks, as we're reminded non-stop by that stupid podcast title. And, um, yeah, so, yeah, they did have a period where hash show business was very good. But a problem they had in the early 90s and a massive problem they had when they started hemorrhaging money to the point where they actually had to be sold was that they couldn't draw flies to hell shows. I wonder fucking why. Little things like this. And you wonder why no one wants to bother coming to the show when WCW were in town. Twice they they came to the point where they almost scrapped house shows altogether in their in their ten year existence. In fact, the second time I believe they did, I'm pretty sure WCW stopped running house shows well before they went out of business. And on two occasions, they've failed to understand the basic concept of giving people a show that makes them want to split with their hard-earned money. Yeah. Definitely. Jesus Christ. So it's match number 10. It is the WW World Tag Team titles on the line as the Patriots take on the Enforcers. It's, uh, it is time for, because WCW's favourite tag team, because they are, like us, from the WCW Special Forces, Firebreaker Chip and Todd Champion, the Patriots, who are dressed up as a pair of male strippers. Um, they're the current United States Tag Team Champions, whereas the Enforcers, Arn Anson and Larry Zbysko, couldn't look more different if they tried. Uh, they're not pretty. They're two hairy, grizzled veterans. Um, Ross describes Chip as 
compact, which is a polite way of saying short ass. Um, Larry has no joy with Chip. He tags in Anderson. Anderson has no better luck than his partner. Chip tags in Todd Champion. Anderson backs him into the corner and the knee to the stomach and the left hand puts the match in the hands of the champions. Um, in a great move, when the momentum starts shifting towards the challengers, Zabisco exits the ring and gets chased around ringside, re-entering the ring in his own corner and making a blind tag to Anderson, who then gets in the ring quite legally, holds Champion's arm behind his back and allows Zabisco to kick him in the stomach. Um, he then gets thrown over the top rope for his troubles when Chip enters the ring to complain to the ref. Uh, a few minutes later, another blind tag is made to allow Zabisco back in. Chip finally makes the hot tag and cleans house on both opponents. Uh, the match gets a bit chaotic with all four men in the ring and the ref losing control. Chip collides head-to-head with Zabisco. Zabisco, <clears throat> Zabisco falls out of the ring. Champion goes after him, and the dazed chip gets leveled with a trademark Arn Anderson spine buster for the pin as Zabisco holds onto the champion to prevent him from getting back in and making the save. So the whole match was a story of the experienced champions putting on a tag team masterclass to defend their younger, more powerful opponents. And I've got to say, they're only a short-lived tag team, but I absolutely loved the Enforcers as a tag team growing up watching WWE on ITV because of these little tricks like that. Yeah, the, the only thing for me is if you watch Larry Zabisco during the match, he sells everything. He sells when he's in pain. He sells when he's not in pain. He sells when he's arguing with the ref. Everything. He's just non-stop work. He was, he was, he was uh, <laughs> not so much in the later years, but back then he was a hell of a hand, wasn't he? Yeah, when yeah. he was doing this seven-minute stall of doom, he wasn't quite so hard-working. But yeah, <laughs> maybe that means it's a tag-team environment is the environment for him. Yeah, back then him, him and Arn Anderson were were incredible. I say they used to do the, you know, they used to work their bollocks off. To, they, was, they were perfect foils for a team like that, weren't they? Really? Yeah, and, and this is the incredible thing to me about this match is that you know there's this whole debate, this whole culture among wrestling fans of of when fans cheer on the guys they're not supposed to be cheering on, they turn against the the guys being established as the as the protagonists in favour of the antagonists. And a lot of people get discredited when they, when they do this and, and written off as just trying to be contrary. You look at matches like this and you can see how it happens because you've got a ring with four wrestlers in it. Two of them are pretty much doing everything for four people. And two of those people are, are just standing around and really struggling to keep up. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist or... Uh, a, a Rip Rogers legend of the ring <clears throat> to to see what's going on there. I'll make that joke because apparently, according to some people, you have to have wrestled to have a clue what's going on. Typical mediocre argument against it. But um, yeah, with, with this, you, you, you could hear the, 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 the smattering of cheers. There's just no charisma, nothing being brought by the United States Tag Team Champions. And yeah, those US Tag Team Championships, I believe they were defunct within a year. I'm not saying it's entirely down to teams like this, but, you know. No, that's a fair point. And, I mean, the, the whole thing about, you know, if you haven't wrestled, you shouldn't have an opinion. That was something that um, Andre Baker would often say, and I often disagreed with him on. And, and, you know, the thing is, I always say, I've never played professional football, but I'll go to my grave insisting that Emil Heskey was shit. <laughs> 
And so say all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mantra I take to my sandwich shop I run you know, during the day. You know, when people come and they say, Liam, this sandwich is terrible. And I say, well, you've never worked in a sandwich shop, so you can't say that. <laughs> now take that stale bread with dog shit in it and eat it. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. I'm going to pass that one on to Tan. She'll definitely use that. (laughs) So before our main event, uh, we are told that Eric Bischoff has an interview with a familiar face, Paul E. Dangerously, who has some news that will shock WCW to its very core. Paul E. is accompanied by Medusa. He rants about how he's been removed as the co-host of World Championship Wrestling Television Program, and he is declaring war on WCW because of this, as he still has his manager's license. Uh, That reminds me, I need to renew mine. He's going to start by taking out Sting. He asked Medusa to find the man who can eliminate Sting and therefore bankrupt WCW. Uh, how little did he know? Um, that man was Eric Bischoff. But anyway, um, he inter- he introduces the WCW Halloween Phantom again, saying that nobody could figuratively pull his mask off. And the Phantom is revealed as ravishing Rick Rude, one of WCW's best ever signings. Rude tries to cut a promo. Some generic music is played so loud that you can't hear a word he's saying. Um, but he does then the music gets switched off and he does vow to dismantle WCW brick by brick and vows to take Sting's US title. And Sting v. Rude was really was a dream match of the time and it proves to be a fantastic feud in WCW. And this was a great angle. Start of the Dangerous Alliance. Yeah, it was. And uh, the very next clash was that infamous match where they had the injury caused by Lex Luger to Sting and there was a oh, big... Will he make it back from a hospital? It was all quite camp. That but was it was, fan- that, it was yeah. a fantastic angle. I remember that. When yeah. You, yeah, but when you had the, uh, the screen come up where it would say, oh, yeah, Eric Bischoff on location from the, the medical facility. It was all, it was all very B-movie-esque. But, yeah, it was a good angle. And I suppose, as Stu said earlier, a certain degree of B-movie style uh, campness to an angle kind of helps it in a way. This is wrestling, after all. Um do you want to hear a little funny story about this storyline and the start of this storyline? Because when Paul Heyman says he's declaring war on WCW and he had been suspended, uh, it was actually a bit of a work shoot, a wonderful, you know, a prototype of a work shoot, really, in the early 90s. Because he had been suspended some not, not too long before this. There was some really convoluted thing going along where apparently... To counter the fact that Ric Flair had gone to WWF with the NWA title, took it on WWF TV and was about to have, well, presumably he was going to have a series of dream matches with Hogan. It never really quite materialised outside of a short house show run. They decided that they were going to, once they got the rights back to the NWA name and they'd been in negotiations with Flair to, to buy the title back things for $50,000. They got it back off him because of a down payment, etc., etc. He'd paid on it. They were going to try and pull off a big thing where they, they, they did a tournament to crown a new NWA champion. They were going to have Jerry Lawler win it. And then they were going to set up a champion versus champion match with Lex Luger to steal the thunder of Hogan versus Flair. Uh, on what planet that would happen, I don't know, but that was their plan. Um, then it transpired that apparently Paul Heyman had, because not many people knew about this plan in advance, and Paul Heyman did know about it, 
he got in trouble for apparently leaking it to a couple of people because it turned out that Eddie Gilbert knew about it and he weren't supposed to. So they blamed Paul and he got suspended. Uh, the, the more likely reality called to Meltzer is that because it would have involved, of course, Luger would have won that match against Lawler. Lawler decided, actually, I don't want to do this after all. And they needed a way of getting out of it. So they pretended it had been leaked to, to ruin it all. And, and Paul was a scapegoat. So there's this big thing going on where he was actually suspended. And by the time they decided, right, well, you know, this is unfair to do this to Paul. And, and we need to, to undo suspension bring back. They decided... I think the majority of the booking committee, with the exception of maybe Jim Hurd, had all had all decided that they wanted him back, not on commentary, but managing again. Because, that is, you know, he can commentate, but he's he is a manager, as proven by the Dangerous Alliance. That's where he should be at this point in time, at the very least. So, I think Paul, well, as you can imagine, considering what came in the, uh, the tenure of ECW after this, he was very keen on really turning this into like a reality meets storyline thing. But uh, I think they kind of softened it down, which in 1991 is fair enough. They softened it down rather than acknowledging any of this crap that wouldn't have meant anything to the, to your typical fan. They've just gone, oh, he was suspended because he was too controversial on commentary, which is, a, you know, it's a, that's a more digestible line for your audience. It's fair enough. But yeah, there was, there, there was a little bit of flirting with reality there. It's an interesting story Ooh. to read via the Observer uh, as it happened or even in retrospect. Nice. Interesting. I'd never heard that one before. Good yeah, stuff. Thanks food for that. Fault. Okay, so it's nearly time for our main event. Um, they I feel played... like I'm being punished for bringing this all up in the first place. You two can fucking talk. <laughs> That's yeah, why we have fucking... a podcast, Stu. Oh, yes. Well, so, so you, yeah, but you were fucking vaccinated with a gramophone needle. You'd never stop. <laughs> you need about ten podcasts. Uh, Stu, what's a, what's a gramophone, mate? You have to fill me in. Yeah, I'll fucking tell you. Okay, so it's time for our main event. They play a video of Ron Simmons returning to Florida State University in his number 50 jersey, training on their pitch, running up the steps of the stadium. It's all very Rocky-like, and I remember this video being played every bloody week on WCW TV (laughs) in the build-up to this show. What they do not show us is the horrendously racist angle that they ran and then tried to uh, not mention which was during the press conference where Lex Luger tells Ron Simmons that if he loses the match, he can have a job on his staff as his chauffeur, <laughs> which Ron Simmons obviously goes a bit mental at. And then they kind of didn't mention that <laughs> because they realised how horrendously distasteful it was. Was this when they also had his manager, Harley Race, bust out that famous line? Or maybe that was when he was feuding with Vader later? There was Because I know it was at some point that they actually had Harley Race say, and I'm quoting here, Negroes like you used to carry my bags to Ron Simmons. It could have easily been this, because he's managing Blue I don't know that one. I haven't heard that one. Or it could have been... I mean, I remember the first time I ever heard of it was documented... Didn't he call him an Uncle Tom as well or something? Maybe. The first time I ever heard this, it was documented in Power Slam magazine. Yeah, and they, and they quoted the line. So it could have easily been the Luger-Simmons feud or the Vader-Simmons feud because right. Harley Race was there for both. I'm not sure. Yeah. But given yeah. that Luger's busted out that bloody line at a press conference, I'm, I'm guessing may, maybe they went all in on the Hill Heat 
Mm. in one go yeah okay so this is a best of three falls match for the wcw world heavyweight championship uh ron simmons v lex luger simmons comes out to his old doom music for some reason he's accompanied by dusty Rhodes, who's announced as his manager and advisor for one night only luger comes out with all the arrogance and strut of a world champion he's accompanied by his manager harley race and his bodyguard mr hughes who look fearsome as always it's a slow, cagey opening to put over the importance of the title. Uh, Ross points out that two of Dusty Rhodes' world title reigns actually came at the expense of Harley Race. Um, <clears throat> the, the first point of action is when Simmons fires up with a series of punches, runs Luger off the ropes, but misses with a drop kick, which allows Luger to take control with basic forearms and kicks. Uh, Simmons comes back with a big clothesline and a power slam. Uh, and this is the first match since the Garvin bad match that the uh, crowd have come alive for. Simmons nails a spine buster to capture the first fall inside about five minutes or so. Um, we then have a 60 second rest period and we get a really cool little segment like boxing or MMA where you see the wrestlers being coached by their respective managers. Um, the bell rings. Luger is looking both shocked and drained. He's selling his back from the spine buster. He's holding onto the ropes as he walks. Um, Simmons targets this with turnbuckle shots and a backdrop. Luger's offense is getting reversed. It's all going wrong for the champion. He attempts a body slam, but Simmons counters with a small package for a near fall. Luger then sidesteps a charging Simmons, which sends the challenger crashing to the floor. More one-dimensional offense, forearms, punches, rakes the eyes from Luger. He then hits a power slam of his own, but sells his back and doesn't make the cover properly, um, which allows Simmons to kick out. A vertical suplex has the same result because he doesn't put his weight down on the cover or hook the leg of Simmons because he's too busy selling his back. Um, Luger slows things down with a sleeper on the canvas. Simmons gets back to his feet. Luger misses a charge into the corner. Simmons rolls him up, gets a count of two and a half. The crowd are on their feet, thinking it's time for a title change. Simmons runs off the ropes, but Race grabs his leg. Before he can interfere any further, Rhodes lands a few punches on him. Uh, no arrests were made, but the Nevada State Athletic Commission might suspend his per Sorry, wrong pay-per-view. Um <laughs> Luger runs at Simmons near the ropes in a crossbody block, but his momentum carries him over the top rope. However, in a really clever little move, Race grabs hold of Simmons' tights to prevent him from falling over the top rope himself. And Nick Patrick adjudges that Simmons threw Luger over the top rope. So Luger wins the second fall by a very hokey-looking disqualification. As Simmons points out that if... Sorry, as Shivani points out that if Simmons had gone over the top as well, that wouldn't have been a DQ. So Race was therefore instrumental. The bell rings for the third and final fall Simmons on his feet Luger looks exhausted and he's still holding onto the top rope as he walks uh, he gets on urgent looking offense he has what looks like a hard way cut by his right eye Simmons hulks up for best for one of a better expression he no sells Luger's offense a clothesline gets a two count as the crowd are on their feet again thinking we're getting a title change Simmons hoists Luger up to the top rope hits a superplex but that, that only gets a two count a power slam is followed by a second rope shoulder block and Luger rolls out of the ring they brawl at ringside Simmons takes up the three point stance to charge at Luger but Luger moves and Simmons goes shoulder first into the ring post Luger throws him back into the ring and nails his uh, pile driver which is his new finisher curiously enough called the attitude adjustment uh, and gets the pin to retain his title by two falls to one now match itself bit average but i mean what i would say guys is i really love the presentation and the feel of it the two out of three falls the rest periods the cameramen it made it feel like a big time sporting contest for a heavyweight title regardless of what the actual 
in-ring action was like. It made the world title feel like the big, important thing that it should be. Well, the whole point of it was, because like, you've got Ron Simmons, who's a, who's a hell of a hand, really good worker, and Luger, who's a bit of a schlub, but still managed to keep somehow getting himself into main event position. So they <laughs> wanted to cover cover that match with as much garnish as possible, um, which they did. And it, like you said, did have the big match feel about it with the managers and the timeouts and the like and everything. But I thought it was paced really well. And considering it has been a pretty uh, piss poor show, all in all, <laughs> I think the crowd stayed with it and they were fucking into it. Yeah. They 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 believe that we're getting a world title change, didn't they? Yeah, they, you, you you don't see a match these days with with legit heat like that had. Um, uh, so for you know Ron Simmons on Luger versus Luger on paper doesn't look so great, but but that that did have sustainable heat in it. So uh, as it transpires, Luger beats Ron Simmons, and what you're saying is is Dean is when Luger beats Ron Simmons, race is instrumental. <laughs> Oh God! Oh, God. oh, it was right there. Oh, by the way, I, I had a little double check while running through that match. So, um, Race's comments were during the Vader feud, just just before uh, Simmons won oh, okay. the title from him. And also, it uh, he said uh, his his words were a a boy like you used to carry my bags, which is still racist, obviously. But mm. what they did is they actually. Uh, blocked out the word boy to make it sound even more controversial, which is pretty fucking tasteless. But yeah, yeah. I just thought I'd pay, given that up, I thought I'd pay that off. Uh, it looks like when Paslam mentioned the, uh, the, the the word Negro, it looks like they were took along for the ride by the uh, sensory yeah. and every bit as much as... But sure. yeah, so fair enough. It is on YouTube as well, by the way, if people want to see whether or not WCW actually did this. They really did. This <laughs> this match, as I said to Dean the other day, this match didn't really do much for me. But as far as getting done what it needs to do, you can't really fault it. And as you said, there is a certain air of legitimacy to it, and that's nice, you know. There's, there's there's a rich history, especially in the lineage of NWA becoming WCW and many other successful wrestling promotions across the globe where they have uh, tried to keep things as legitimate and sport-wise as possible to help make money and keep people firmly in belief of it. And so as a result, after this hard-fought title defence, I can't wait for this uh, this sporting fighting champion to fight his next really legitimate sporting fighting defence against, I don't know, maybe one of the guys in that great big cage with the electric chair? What do you reckon? <laughs> so, and that's the problem. Uh, it's one thing to run a, a kooky promotion. There is an audience for it, it's entertaining. There's one thing to go the sporting way. And, and, you know, WCW has the lineage, as I touched upon. But in this instance, there's very much an identity crisis on this card. And as Stu touched upon it's clear what this audience, this live crowd would like to see. And that's more of the main event and less of the cages and the electric chairs and the stupidity. And it was an uphill struggle for that crowd, I think, because, you know, they were deadly silent during certain parts and yet they were getting into the matches where something was on the line and it had been built up well on TV. And when I say built up well on TV, as, as we mentioned during, uh, Halloween Havoc 92 episode, Dean. We were talking about um, world champion Ron Simmons and the, and the failure of that title reign. But little things they were doing quite well. And we, we, we hearkened back to when they really 
made a big deal of hyping up the fact that you know Ron Simmons was a legitimate megastar athlete. His his mm. shirt was retired at Florida State. He was a big time college football player, and college football's fucking huge out there. Uh, you know the NFL does not play on a Saturday because that is college football day. They get like. 90,000 people come to a game. It's Radical. a big deal. He's a he he was a sporting celebrity. He had infinite crossover appeal. And one thing that did come out of this match, even though it really weren't for me at all, I found it quite by the numbers and plodding and and that second fourth thing was just ludicrous. The, the whole over the top rule is stupid, and to try and get Crave with a booking of it is even worse. Well, I think the the problem is that Luger had stopped giving a <laughs> shit by then because he. He'd got a he'd got a handful of matches left on his contract, and he was off to the World Bodybuilding Federation. It's very true, but there's a lot of things I didn't like about this match, and I mentioned the cover. But one thing I did like is that Ron Simmons was put over in defeat. He looked yeah. like he could one day win the title, which Bill Watts very much wanted to do. And thanks to this, he didn't have to put much work in to put Ron Simmons in that place. But for a multitude of reasons, and if you listen to the Havoc 92 podcast, we do go into some of them, it, it wasn't to be. But this yeah. was this was how you have someone challenge unsuccessfully for a title and come out with their stock higher. And that is a big thing. That is a good thing. Otherwise, this match just wasn't for me. And I'm not going to say it was a bad match because a lot of people like it and there's, I can see why they like it, but no, like with the uh, Austin Rhodes thing, there was there was things I liked, and, and the overall thing just wasn't me. Yeah, T- Tony Schiavone actually says at the end of it, that was one of the greatest matches of all time. No, <laughs> he wouldn't <laughs> say something like that. Yeah. I said that will go down as one of the greatest. That's the, the, the oh, second man. stupidest thing he said that night. <laughs> we, you know, we had we had some. We had, as you as you said, Liam, a first draft wrestle crapper, but then we also had the seeds of the Dangerous Alliance being sown that night. So you know, some good, some bad. Now, Stu, before we let you go, we always ask our guests to come up with a particular WCW theme tune, entrance music, yes. and I, I believe you've uh, you've told uh, Liam what the tune is. So um, absolutely. I don't know if you guys know Stephen King, uh, the, obviously the horror author, huge wrestling fan. In uh, Creepshow 1, um, he, uh, he always has a little bit of wrestling in, in his movies. In Creepshow 1, he had a match with, uh, I, I believe it was Afro and Seeker, on the TV. The second one, I don't know if you've seen Creepshow 2, either of you? Not me, no. No. Well, well, well I've kind of fucked my story. <laughs> but there's a load of kids on a raft and they're, they're trying to escape this horrible black ooze and playing on the uh, on their picnic hamper on the radio is the theme tune of Lex Luger. And that is the one I want to hear. Ah. So he always puts in little subliminal wrestling things in his movies, you see. I see. I'm, I'm terrible with movies. I, I lack the attention span. But Unless I it's mean, the Midnight Express thing. 
There is that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love this. that. I love it. But, but yeah, this is this is an iconic tune. This is I, you know, I, I remember this as a as a teenager watching WCW. This this was a theme tune that he used as a babyface. He used as a heel. It was the yeah, it was iconic of its time. Well, it's got that driving ZZ Top kind of sound to it. You know, all, all it's, it's I love it. Belter. It's crazy how you know. I love this theme. It's great. He did use it face and heel, but I think to me it just it's textbook heel theme. That that growling guitar. There's something mm. full. You know, you, you know, a uh, 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 full of himself, but very threatening guy is gonna strut out. Usually with a title belt around his waist. Heaven knows he held that US title for long, and right here at this show he's the world champion. So that was often the case. But it's crazy to think how as good as this theme tune is. Someone as as plodding and mediocre as Lex Luger <laughs> actually <laughs> actually got, you know, it, it's subjective. But as much as I like this theme, he would come back to WCW with an even better theme. And I'm hoping someone, we're, we're only going to have the one here because when you've got two good themes, we're going to keep these separate. I'm sure someone will nominate Slammer from uh, 95 to 99 at some point. But uh, yeah, I mean, he had two cracking themes in WCW. And I like segueing into his second theme purely because obviously that, that time of his in WCW started when he showed up unannounced on the first Nitro after wrestling for WWE the day before. And it, Dean, we... Uh, yeah. Yeah. We watched along in, as episode 21, yeah. And people seem to like that, so I think we should try and find the odd free evening yeah. and we'll try and do a few more. We'll do a few more. We Yeah, just make it clear to people that that, that is going to be in, in addition to these pay-per-view reviews rather than, rather than as well as. But anyway, time is marching on. It's the time to say very big thank you and farewell to our guest EWW Dominator Stu Allen and just remind everyone of your, your big 20th anniversary show again yeah god bless you guys uh, yeah October 27th Hastings Sussex Coast College uh, give us a call 07808 if you want tickets also uh, EWW-wrestling.com um, and uh, yeah thank you guys very much I love the format uh, it's a hell of a show she'll be uh, giving you a plug on Stiff Right Hand, and uh, yeah, nice one, thank you. Thank you very much, and if people want to get hold of the Stiff Right Hand podcast, I take it they go to iTunes? Yeah, we, like I said, we've got a mini site, uh, which is where we get most of our downloads, which is stiffrighthand.com, and uh, yeah, uh, iTunes, Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict, um, anywhere else you can find them. Cool, best of luck with the 20th anniversary show, and many congratulations on getting to 20 years. I mean, it's one heck of an achievement. Thank you, man. And I can only apologise for making you guys sit for all this shit. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I will see you on, the, if not before, on November the 12th for IPW and well, Eastbourne. Sir. I look cool. forward to it, my friends. Stu, thank you very much indeed. Yep, just to let you guys know, November is a very busy month for IPW. We will be, um, I, well, I'll be commentating on uh, a few shows in that month. We have got the 1st of November, IPW debuts at the Ota Academy in Islington. Main event there is Kip Sabian defending his world championship against former champion Mark Haskins. There's a TV taping for our new show on the Fight Network on November 7th at Unit 9 in Milton Keynes. Then we're in Eastbourne at My Skate World on November 12th, as we said. 
November 27th is the Frog and Bucket in Manchester for the Tuesday Night Graps Aussie Open Invitational. And then we return to the beautiful Westgate Hall in the wonderful city of Canterbury on November 30th for the Great British Beer Bash with James Storm. Thank you so much for downloading this. Please tell a friend, tell several friends on behalf of Liam Happ. This is the Twisted Genius saying thanks for joining us and I'll see you ringside.